Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Athletics Life Stories with your host, Chris Broadbent. And there's so many more like-for-like psychological traits between entrepreneurs, successful founders, and successful sports people. When COVID came along, uh, I ended up running the entire operations of the Premier League's COVID testing. And it was like the most awful meeting. There was like three people in the stand. It was pouring down with rain, it was freezing cold. Welcome to Athletics Life Stories with myself, Chris Broadbent. Today I'm joined by Olympic relay medalist and former British 400 meters champion Andrew Steele. Beyond retirement, he's now an entrepreneurial innovator in fitness and an expert on personalised health solutions. Uh, is that fair to say, Andrew? It's good. Well done. Yeah, I can, I can probably flesh that out more for you. But yes. <laughs> yeah, good work, Chris. I've, I've got to get it in, into a nutshell, I'm afraid. So hopefully that works for you. Um, so tell us about how you got started in athletics. Well, that's, that's a tricky question. Eh? I think long back, most of the most of the podcasts I've recorded in recent years have all been what I did since athletics, right? So it's, right. it's, it's refreshing to talk about the sport itself. Hey, what well, I, I I actually joined my coach Steve Ball, who went on to coach me all the way through my career, more or less, when I was eight years old. So um, so I was with the same coach from eight through to I think 30, 31 years old. Um, so I I um. I think that would probably be the best way to put it. I do actually remember my first ever 400 metres race. So I was running at, at Trafford Athletic Club, which went on to be my my home club. I must have been seven, maybe. And um, at that age, you still run a 400 metres where you, you start on the 800 metre line and then you break after 100 metres at that age. So it's like a, it's a middle distance event when, you, when you're that old. And I remember there was a character who was... Um, kept like blocking me from overtaking him literally like running side to side and putting his arms out so I had to like bide my time and then do a great sprint finish at the end and I ran 72 seconds I remember it specifically and from that one of the coaches from Trout Athletic Club said oh would you would you like to come and train here so that I guess really that's probably the, the way my uh, athletic career started with some help from um, an amazing teacher I had in primary school a guy called uh, Peter Felstead who off his own back started doing extra cross-country training with us uh, and it was the one that sort of pushed me to 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 try and find a club or join that club as well so um so I was I was lucky enough really because I would say 
Chris, and sometimes people find this quite an odd thing. Is I don't, I don't see myself as that naturally talented for sport. <laughs> like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not that. I just look like an average guy. I never had like I couldn't. No flexibility, no strength, no speed. There's nothing particularly unique about me. Later in life, I worked in sports science and genomics, and I know there's nothing particularly unique, <laughs> unique about me as well. And then, um, but I just had a. I think it seems like I have a sort of psychological resilience that allowed me to sort of work really hard and and break through sort of discomfort. And thankfully, due to this teacher, he kind of saw that. And, and, you know, you know, when you're a child, it's often you, once you put your head above the waterline and someone gives you praise for something, you you double down on it, right? And you do more and more of that. And I was lucky that this guy, Peter Felstead, Mr. Felstead from St. Catharines in, in Manchester, pushed me to do that and it and thankfully it sort of gave me the opportunity to to really double down on it and uh, eventually you know led me to olympic games remarkably yeah you, you must have been pretty good though i mean you get you won the english schools didn't you well english schools at 16 if i'm not mistaken yeah. Yeah. uh in exeter exeter i think uh in yeah, exeter okay. if I, I was gonna say barry st edmunds that was the one before i did yeah but, but you know it's funny because I always, um, I was always good, you know, I was, I was decent. I definitely, I obviously had some talent, but I think my talent was less physical talent and more, you know, resilient psychological talent. So I had this sort of ability to push myself more than others or to withstand the discomfort more than others. So naturally, I'm not saying I'd, you know, no talent. Talent is a broad, complicated spectrum, but my talent led in that was sort of in the less traditional sense that I certainly was not physically sort of, you know blessed more than any other average athlete but uh psychologically i seem to have something else about me at the time for whatever reason good 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 so you're about 16 at this time so was that um would i be right now saying a bit left field this but your dad was uh one of the early celebrity doctors if you like dr christopher Steele. on this morning it was like like him hillary jones raj Prasad. They were like the go-to doctors on TV, weren't they? And um, all sworn enemies as well. You know, between were they? So, yeah, so I think uh, the story of that is, yeah, my dad is Dr. Chris Steele, who uh, is still, uh, still still, sometimes today, still on this morning, and was the only the only member of the team that was there on the first episode um, oh, and right. uh, and still going. He's 78 now and, uh, you know, largely, largely retired, but he's... Um, Still, uh, uh, um, still called upon occasionally by by the show to give his opinion on something, albeit normally over a video call nowadays than in the studio. But he was he was on the show this morning with with Richard and Judy and uh, and all those things since um, I think since 1984 maybe or 85. So a really long television career, thankfully. Um, so yeah, amazing really. Did Did you ever join him in the studios? Did you ever get behind the scenes there? Well, I've been on a few times. Yeah, I've been on a few times, especially around um, the time which I'm sure we'll discuss more when. When we were being rewarded the medal, when the Russians were disqualified, yeah. I had a few, a few, uh, a few guys on the show around there. And I even went on that. You remember the uh, the weather map they used to have in the Albert Dock? Oh, you've been on that, have you? <laughs> been on the weather map. <laughs> I've done the jump across to Ireland. Uh, anyone that's younger listening to this won't have a clue what we're talking no, about. But, uh, <laughs> but, they can but, Google it. It's on YouTube. They can Google it. For another time. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so, so that was it. That's uh, that's what that's what my, my my dad did and um, and still does to some extent today. Ah, uh, good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. So you stuck with the sport though, and uh, I mean. You got to, I mean, did you stick with it all the way through university as well? Well, I didn't go to university, actually. So, did you not? I mean, okay. if, I, if I maybe sort of, I'll, 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 I'll try my best to remember what actually occurred. So I won the English schools in, in whatever year that was, maybe 2000, 
one or something. I was 16, and um, and uh, I was surprised. I was uh, I'm surprised I won that. I shouldn't I shouldn't have won it. There was a uh, in fact at the time um, uh, there was an athlete you may remember, Richard Davenport, a great amazing talent yeah. athlete, was sort of be able to win the English schools at sort of one of five different events from sort of you know 200 400 hurdles 800 1500 and then and uh, we had a great sort of rivalry at the time and i was very honestly i was very surprised i came out on top um that year and it, that that sort of gave me a sense of like oh actually maybe i'm sort of you know like this isn't just i'm not just sort of good a good athlete regionally maybe I'm, i've got something in it and everyone always used to say to me oh would you would you be professional and i always thought no it's not really an option for me i, I didn't really want feel the need to um i didn't necessarily i probably didn't have the the self-belief that i was capable of, of being a sort of professional athlete but then um it got to when i was just turning 18 so 2003 and i'd run a bit faster i'd run sort of you know into the 47s maybe into the 46s and mm. i'll tell you what happened was um someone said hey there's this race in italy and you could run in it if you want and i was like oh, that's that's cool and i was just uh, i had I'd applied for university, I'd done my sort of UCAS stuff, and I, I think I had an offer accepted at Leeds to study Spanish and business, if I'm not mistaken. This was when I was 18. <laughs> and then uh, someone said, oh, you should do this race in Italy. And I went there and I ran quite fast. And it was up at this remarkable track called Sestriere, which is like two and a half thousand metres above altitude, and I did above sea level. And I didn't know that altitude was a performance enhancer. And I ran like for really fast time. <laughs> like amazed by it and I thought wow this is great and then they gave me some money for winning it and I was like wow this is this is amazing and they gave me a watch and they gave me all sorts of great things and I was like this is remarkable <laughs> maybe I won't go to university yet and, uh, <laughs> and so I am um, actually deferred my university place and I that if I summarize that I deferred a place at university for the next 10 years effectively, <laughs> effectively. <laughs> and I kept meaning to go and never did because I kept running just that little bit faster um, and then uh, eventually things got a bit more serious. In 2006, I made the Commonwealth Games team in Melbourne, and that was an amazing experience. Being at a multi-sport championship in a you know incredible environment, actually meeting other athletes and seeing how they trained, and knowing so there was a somewhat there was a life here in in that. If I could if I could you know just about scrape into the team each time, and uh, and that gave me sort of um, amazing motivation really. And it, I it whenever I've spoken to younger athletes now that have yet to sort of reach these major championships, I find these quite sort of draconian cost saving selection policies nowadays. <clears throat> so short sighted because if I hadn't made that championship, I, I for sure would not have made any other championships. It, gi- it gave me something extra. And I just think if you can open up the opportunity to be part of a major championship to as many people as possible, you will create a talent tunnel, which is, very very effective for your federation so you might spend more money in the in the early stages but you'll save yourself or create yourself more revenue in the future as a federation if you open up that opportunity to as many as possible and i only scraped into that team i was in the in the six for the relay right i was yeah. not you know guaranteed a place and then the next year i was british champion and the next year i was at the olympic game yeah. right? so and it certainly wouldn't have happened if i didn't make it to melbourne yeah tell us about that british championship so you were I guess Rooney was the, the the new kid in the block, really, wasn't he, 400 metres? But you you got the better of him that year, didn't you? I, I did that year, but th- that was the only time. <laughs> so, yeah. Still, right? <laughs> uh, thankfully, it was in front of a home crowd in Manchester, right? So that that was uh, that was really good. I think um, I, I just just lucky enough to um, uh, be a, a little bit faster on the day, uh, high 45s, if I'm not mistaken, and hmm. it was a good race. 
Uh, but we're good, good, good friends, and Rooney by far the, the more talented athlete <laughs> of the two. But I'm so pleased I managed to sort of gain a national title once. It was a, it was a real, I would say the, the most nerve-wracking race I've ever done was that national final because I, I thought I should win and I was capable of winning, and it was you know local to me and yeah. it, it was the home crowd, if you will. Not that there's a huge crowd at um, the Manchester Stadium there, but but it was um it was really. It, that felt at the highest pressure environment because it was mine to lose, and that's often the thing people think about. It's like actually, when you're the when you're the favourite or you think you can win, that's where it's re- you really you see how you handle nerves. It's not when you're the hey maybe I've got a chance at a, at a win, but it'll be an outside chance. That's scary, but it's nowhere near the same as being sort of like it's yours to lose. Like the so when you see these great champions that win and win again, I have so much admiration for them because it's a that's a really hard thing to get right. And handling yeah. the pressure of it's all down to you so if you don't win it's because you messed up as opposed to someone else was faster right so it's um that was good but i'm so glad i won that, that championship I, I often forget i did that's to be honest um <laughs> and uh and i've not got not got the video or i've, I've not got any proof of this all messed around <laughs> uh, um, yeah so that's a, that's probably what, one of my career highlights for sure yeah absolutely so you got some world champs that year and you're, you're a consistent 45 runner then now do you have any memories of that Osaka world championships I guess that was some of the biggest crowds you ran in front of at that, that time yeah it was I, I remember um it was a very intimidating environment in the stadium because it was kind of um it was super humid mm. and of course in the in these major championships especially when they're sort of you know in the far east or or, or you know not not in European time zones you have these kind of heats super early in the morning right so the heat was at like 8.30 in the morning or something crazy local time. So you have to get your body clock sort of adjusted to that. And then your semifinals at 10 p.m. at night the next day. So you have a real tough time. If I'm not mistaken, I don't think I made it through the heats there. Um, but um, the, some of the memories I have from that was my first real experience of a, of a call room. And people outside of the sport don't realise this, that, you know, just before you compete, you effectively get funneled into these small pens to sit thigh to thigh literally like touching thighs with with your competitors and it's a real interesting microcosm of how people handle pressure because um uh there was someone that was really fat maybe Laji decor Laji decor was he a french born jamita runner uh, uh i think he was yeah. a hurdler wasn't he yeah yeah. No, not yeah there was another there was a french born jamita who was really fast 44 guy in my okay. heat and then there was an austrian runner who was at the same stage as me first time in a major championship and the Austrian runner was being so like superficially like nervous, as in telling me, "Oh my God, I'm really scared." Like, <laughs> how do you feel about it? And then obviously everyone else had been super cool, and I was somewhere in the middle, trying to pretend that I wasn't bothered, but I really was. And um, and I, uh, they used to do this thing, and they still do it most major championships. Is just before they call on your marks, they do this kind of foghorn to clear the track, you know. And I remember thinking it was like War of the Worlds. It was like this sort of really intimidating nasty yeah. sound just before you ran i remember thinking wow this is really visceral this is a really intense experience doing this and i was out in lane nine i think so i had no clue what was going on and, um but it was a it was a it was a learning experience all the same and, and, and like i said before like you you do not experience that there is there is no replication at um lower tier events that the call room is an hour before your race so you have to warm up two hours before and then effectively cool down again and do the cool down and all those nerves in and amongst all your competitors which you never have to do at a domestic event or yeah. a smaller race and so there's so much learning that comes from being just 
not required to win a medal at a championship that is so beneficial for the future. And that's why, you know, as I said, I just find it so short-sighted when federations cost save by not shipping athletes out to a, to a major mm-hmm. championship. And they just, they harm themselves so much. Whereas in other sort of domestic leagues that, you know, the U S collegiate system is, is almost as, as high pressure as running, uh, probably more so than a, than a world or Olympic games. And so they, they come to these major championships having been exposed to this. You, know, you can't build that resilience unless you've been exposed to it elsewhere. Uh, and that was a, it's a real learning experience. And I'm, again, like it all contributes to something. So the next year when I went to Beijing, I, I had, I knew what to expect. Just as Melbourne gave me an exposure, which I knew what to expect at a world championship, yeah. the world champs helped me, you know, go one up to that, uh, you know, Olympic level. And I always remember Marlon Devonish telling me a story once, saying like, the difference between the world champs and Olympics is the world champs you turn out for your heat at eight a.m. and there's like ten people in the stadium. You go to the Olympics at eight a.m. and there's eighty thousand people all there, you know, like ready, yeah. ready to watch you, even though it's like a the first round super early morning there and so like you were able to sort of quantify what you might need to expect in the next year it was um it was really really uh, um you know useful i loved osaka had a great time we were in these tiny little hotel rooms cramped you know but i got to experience sort of you know what it's like having a accreditation in a, in a city when there's a big event going on and um and had, had a had a great time uh and uh and yeah it was um it was also interesting because we had I think we were we had the same holding camp location in Macau that we then had for yeah. Beijing, so that mm-hmm. also made Beijing like a, a little bit less mysterious as well, right? So it was uh, yeah, really good. But it, so we didn't the, do that well as a as a as a team. I don't think it was. <laughs> I think it was. I think Christina Herrigo and uh, Nicholas Sanders kind of saved the day, didn't they? Yeah, yeah they saved the day, day. Really, yeah. 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 Um, but you got to the Olympics next year. What, tell us what the feelings like when you first get that. You confirm your Olympic place. You got selection. You got the kit. What's the reaction of your friends and family to that? You're you're officially an Olympian. Yeah, that's amazing, actually. If you if I had to, yeah, I've never really. Because that's that's a permanent well, lifetime status, that isn't it? That's what I mean. Once you you could have been world champion, world record holder, and if you didn't make the games for whatever reason, like somehow to the everyday populace that you they can't really quantify that you're a really good athlete. You know, like it, the the Olympics is a really um, a real game changer just in the way you define yourself externally really to, to people when you meet them because even if you just made the Olympic team and you absolutely failed and bombed out or got injured the fact that you were an Olympian um, is this sort of mark on your CV that you're able to just take with you for the rest of your life and I'd probably say I've been quite good at uh, capitalising on that but um, um, and, and especially for most of my career I didn't have any medal from 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 the games either so just having been part of it and then you know the, the like we said sort of the commonwealth games to world championships that world championship olympics is this level up where suddenly it's a true multi-sport the entire world is sort of focused on this thing at any one time and uh you turn up there and there's members of the royal family around and there's you know there's there's just such a level of um a different level like commercially the all these uh brands that are associated with the games and, and the, the Olympic Village was quite you know, it was a remarkable experience the first time you arrive in there you're just like I always said that everybody in that, that village is kind of like the superlative of who they are so they're either like the smallest or the tallest or the, the biggest or the you know they're, they're, they're just it's a remarkable thing and it's almost like some sort of bizarre like utopian society because everybody eats in the same place for free and then has the same level of accommodation 
and then gathers there. So I remember seeing, like, I think it was Rafael Nadal. It was one of the big three tennis players yeah. waiting in line for his, like, breakfast cereal behind, like, a, ty- a bunch of Taiwanese, like, table tennis players or gymnasts or something. And thinking, like, you know, this man is worth tens of millions of dollars and, and these people definitely aren't. And he's having to wait behind them. And I, I just thought it was brilliant, you know. The, the only caveat being that the NBA players, of course, were on some cruise ship somewhere or, or, <laughs> or, or something or something somewhere else. But it's a really great experience. And you see all these different people and experience all these different types of humanity and social um, uh, upbringings and demographics and even within the the GB team, you've got people from you know, public school and people from you know, really rough end of the state schools and and the difference in sports and how they treat their performance and otherwise it's absolutely fascinating. My one downside from the games is that I was always in the four by four relay, which is always the last event, and so you don't get to sort of take full advantage of the social side of being at the games. You know, so the swimmers finish in the first week. And then they basically have the best school holiday of their lives where you <laughs> roam around the city with your accreditation, go to various hospitality suites of sponsors, of commercial partners of the games, eat what you want at the free McDonald's in the <laughs> in the village and, yeah. and you have a great time. By the time I was ready for that, the village was shutting down, you know, so um, so that's my <laughs> that's the one downside from being in the 400. Yeah, you did actually perform very well. Didn't you? I mean, you performed very well. You ran your fastest time there. Yeah. Almost at the wrong the wrong time, didn't you? I mean, you ran you ran an absolute storm in the heats. You did you beat yeah. yeah. You're only sub yeah, 45. Yeah. I, ran, yeah, I ran my only my only sub 45 clocking by far my best performance in the heats, and it felt like the easiest race of my life, you know. Um, so, yeah. um, to be honest, I probably, you know, uh, it's not I couldn't have run any slower to make the semi final, and I probably couldn't have run any faster than the semi final because actually that that performance took it out of me more than I was capable of running. So that re- really, I was hitting sort of the the top end of what I was actually capable of, I think. And then for all, I probably could have executed slightly better in the semi-final, maybe run, you know, a couple of tenths faster. But I, I realistically, I could not have made the final, uh, even if I'd run. I think I had to run 44, five or six to have made the final. I, I don't think I was capable of that. If I look back on it philosophically, at the time I had all the bravado that I should have done. right. But um, looking back on it now, I don't think I was capable of running much faster than that. So, and that comes down to the hardest thing there was managing those times in the day. So I was getting up at 4 a.m. every day in order to have my circadian rhythms, my hormonal sort of awakeness ready for the heat, which was at super early in the morning. But then my semi-finals at 10 p.m. So I was basically ready for sleep by the time my semi-final came the next day. So it's a very, very hard balance. And I think um, athletes like don't they don't plan for that they don't they don't plan for like how they're going to compete at 8 a.m in the morning how they're going to compete at 10 p.m at night how they're going to do that back to back and if i was a if i was a coach i would try and sort of replicate that in some way in in, in training in the months running up to a major championship because you you never have to deal with that elsewhere you know so it's, it's a, a unique thing to a championship as well yeah yeah and the other thing that that that, that the beijing was that you did actually come away eventually years and years later with a medal because uh, you finished fourth to the, in the relays behind the well we can say the behind the cheating Russians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so yeah, it's funny. We finished fourth. We ran really. Yeah, well, at the time, did you, I mean, at the time, did you, you know, spoke to a lot of athletes and they say that uh, they knew who was at it. You know, they knew they knew they were at it. I mean, did you know at the time that there was yeah. some dodgy stuff going on? I think I think it's easy looking back at it now to say yeah, we definitely knew, but we definitely had the conversation, right? I know myself and Martin really talking about it at the time and I'll tell you why there's red flags right so 
the Russians had kept their fastest athlete, who was astonishingly fast. I think ran one of the fastest splits of the games, maybe the fastest split of the game, out of the individual event and reserved them for the relay. So, like, that's a red flag. Right? You know, you someone who's clearly your best athlete is not going under the heavier scrutiny of potential, like, post-competition testing by only being in the relay. I don't know what the calculations from the Russian side were and whether that did reduce the risk of them testing positive or not. But that was a red flag. And then the level of performance by that individual was like crazy. And then there's also almost just like, you know, there's a there's a statistical nature of running and what's capable and what's possible and what normally gets you there. And I think if I'm not mistaken, we ran the fast at the time, the fastest time to ever not win a medal in full F1. Statisticians will probably correct me on that, but it was definitely up there. We ran pretty quick uh, mm -hmm. for not winning a medal. And if you'd said to us before the race, hey, you're going to run two minutes 58 and you're not going to win a medal, we would have said, oh, of course we'll win a medal with 258, right, based off the, the standard out there. So we ran pretty well. Um, I actually got a, I basically got a, um, an inguinal, a groin hernia during my legs so, um, on the first leg in the final. Uh, on the back straight, I remember chasing LaShawn Merritt and then feeling like something going in my groin. But it's it's an Olympic final. You can't in a relay on first leg. You can't. Oh, I'll just pull up. I'll just. I'll be. You know, I'll, I'll. I'll be cautious. You have to just go for it. And I, I remember seeing on the video, I can almost identify where my stride had to change. So it definitely harmed harmed the performance a little bit. But I, I still run a, a reasonable first leg split if I'm not mistaken. But um, and then yeah, we we finished fourth, and it was kind of like. You know, it was definitely deflating. I think at the time I probably was less deflated than I realised I would be later in life by it because I thought, well, you know, it's OK. My first Olympic Games, I'm going to win loads more medals. We're going to run much faster. And um, and of course, uh, I never did. <laughs> I never, yeah. never ran faster. I barely made the team subsequently after that. And, um, and so, you know, it was only once sort of the next four years had passed and I didn't make it to London. I didn't make it onto the team for 2012 that really that fourth place felt like a, you know, a, a real deflation, <laughs> like and a, a real, a real sort of, Oh, I'm unlucky. I didn't make third there, but all along those years, there kept on being sort of these murmurs of like, Oh yeah. You know, the Russians were cheating though. The statute of limitation is eight years. So there's still a chance and there's still a chance. So it did hang over us. So we obviously had enough red flags that we felt there was a suspicion on that. Um, and nine years later, uh, the, that that did come to fruition <laughs> amazingly yeah. so uh, i've had the best of both worlds in some way i sort of I, I i always think of this in my post track career um i'm almost thankful i didn't win the medal at the time uh and indulge me two minutes on explaining this thing yeah that's interesting yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like uh, the success in sport is 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 in some ways uh almost imprisons you in a way right because you know you are forced to pursue this not in not forced to but you you are obliged to by your talent right? so if um you know if you're if you're pretty good at this and you can make a living like it's crazy of you to think of a plan b right? it's, you you absolutely mustn't think of a plan b and you must pursue that and certainly everybody watching sport or fans of sport or anyone around you would say of course like look at you you're good enough to be in the olympic team like you must you must go for this and uh and so when you keep sort of scraping a living out of this, which I did, um, some years I had a good year, you know, financially, and it, it seemed like it was equivalent to actually having a job. But I didn't go to university. I pursued this outside of going to universities. I, I actually, you know, eschewed going 
for getting any qualifications. I never had a job. Um, I was just a runner. And so I had no work experience and no education. And then um, if I had won this medal in Beijing, I think I probably would have had a little bit. I would have I would not have got dropped from the funding. So I ended up being dropped from funding a year or two later. Um, and then uh, and I probably would have I think I probably could have made maybe the the individual event at 2012. And then I would have kept going for four more years through to 2016 as a result of that. And I don't think the best I ever could have hoped for would be potentially maybe winning an individual medal at the Europeans. Maybe I think that's the best I could have achieved in my career. Okay. Maybe gold in a, in a low year, but probably silver at Europeans. That probably would have been my ceiling. Yeah. And that would have trapped me through to being 31, 32. And uh, I would then have sort of probably found myself a little bit blinkered as to what my possibilities were outside of sport when the end inevitably came. This way... I was forced to think and open my mind to something else because I, I had no two ways about it. At the point when I failed to qualify for London 2012, I hadn't been funded for two years. So I'd actually incurred over £20,000 of credit card debt pursuing this dream of oh. being in London 2012. I had no education and I had no work experience. So when I failed to make the team, um, I, and I remember I actually had a sponsorship deal with a company and I'd been... I had the deal where I would effectively have been given £20,000 if I made the team and I didn't make the team and that would have paid for my credit card debt, right? yeah. <laughs> but, I, and, um, but I didn't make it. And so I suddenly found myself with like, like literally sort of thinking, well, what on earth am I going to do? Like, And I was forced to open my mind to anything and one opportunity came, which ended up becoming um, DNA Fit, which is the first business that I co-founded. And uh, I think if I had been, you know, if I had, had I made London in 2012, I would not have pursued that opportunity if it had come. I would have scraped a living more over the next four years. And then I would have found myself in probably just as bad a position, but with four years less of a head start on yeah. like reinventing myself or doing something else in my life. So it's um it's a it's a poison um what's the phrase? Poison chalice. It's a poison, poison chalice. chalice. Yeah. It's a case of like it, it, there's nothing wrong with it, and you absolutely should take advantage of your talent. But I'm almost thankful I didn't win the medal at the time because it gave me the forced me into being open-minded about what I do next and then later on I got the medal anyway so you know yeah good yeah, well, yeah. I mean, how did you cope with the next few years because it was there's no doubt you didn't, you didn't really build upon 20 to 2008 you didn't get you didn't kick on like you wanted to was it in, injury illness I mean and how did you what made you stubbornly fight on for a few years really well it was never that clear <clears> that I was like getting worse you know like it, it, it yeah went, when it's really clear that you're like, I'm just not good anymore, then then you can sort of make a decision on that. But I was still running okay, and I had various caveats as to why that was the case, right? So 2009, I remember early early 2009, I was in astonishing shape. I was out in Australia. I used to go and train at the Australian Institute of Sport with them, okay. which called Tudor Bidder, every spring or every northern hemisphere spring, uh, autumn for, for them. And uh, and that was great there. And I remember running some incredible times in training, and I thought, oh, maybe I could run, you know, Maybe I could even challenge for the British record this year. You know, I was really that I was quite bullish about my, my opportunities in 2009. And then I got this um, quite serious sort of groin injury. Uh, I can't remember what its name was now, but effectively almost like a stress fracture of the pubic symphysis. Um, and uh, and it, it, for right or wrong, you know, the advice I was given by the medical team was, you know, if you want to have a career next year, you probably need to not run at all this year. And, um, you know, and uh, I think I probably could have missioned through and just 
looking back at it, if I'd just gone out and run, dropped one really fast time and then then taken the hit on the year after, um, then I would have been better off. But I, I didn't compete much in 2009 as a result. And really, I never quite recovered from that. In 2010, I um, I got glandular fever. So, you know, quite common amongst athletes. It's kind of an overtraining, stress-related illness. And that that made me very inconsistent on my ability to train hard or compete. And I still ran 45 seconds every year of my career, I think, more or less, and, and did okay. That's the problem. It was never clear that I was, like, that much slower. It always yeah. seemed like I still had it. and uh, yeah. But I was just never consistent enough, and I – didn't quite execute at the right times of the year to make the team more or less. And uh, I scraped onto a couple of other sort of European cups and so on, but I never made a major championship again. Um, and 2012 came and that the listeners hit, you know, the listeners will know this, but like it was, it was so all encompassing that, you know, ever since we were awarded the games in 2005 or whatever it was, Every waking breath, if you told someone you were a runner, they was like, are you going to be at 2012? Are you going to be at 2012? Every single interaction with anybody was about the fact, are you going to be at 2012? And you don't know until three weeks before the thing. So your entire life, your entire personality, your identity, everybody you know, the network of your friends and family are all completely defined by a home Olympic Games when it happens, if you've got a chance of being there. So it was very all-encompassing, like this mysterious beast, just like that had infiltrated everything in your life and uh, I quite I quite liked that it was great it just made it such a big thing to work towards but then I missed out on the team effectively by one place you know I was probably seventh in the country and we took the top six not as simple as that but I, I just missed out on the team and I I can't I can't sort of exaggerate just just how like that was almost like a, a death of a close family member to me it was it was really it was really huge I, I really didn't know what to do with myself what to call myself how to how to get over that grief and um, it was it was true grief and um and you know athletes aren't ready for that they don't expect that but it, it was a home olympic games i was capable of being there and not only did i not make you know the final in the individual event or not run 44 0.5 seconds or whatever I'd hoped to run I didn't even make the the team and it was like I couldn't figure out how to even come to terms with that it was really hard it took me many many months to um, to get over that um, yeah people yeah. I speak athletes I speak to it's it's one extreme what other it's a fantastic experience or the worst experience of their life it's very you know for the rest of the country yeah. partying it makes it almost even worse you know the rest of the country is loving what's going on <laughs> how did you spend it you watch well you it? know what happened is that <laughs> I remember on the day of Super Saturday I was, it was like, it was like a, it was a perfect simile for me missing out on the games. I was, I was competing at some race in a suburb of Gothenburg, Mollendal or something. And it was like the most awful meeting. There was like three people in the stand. It was pouring down with rain. It was freezing cold. And um, and I ran awful. Like I ran, <laughs> yeah, I ran I'm really slow. I didn't even, didn't even win that race. And um and I remember thinking, wow, this is a real representation of me not making the... the, the <laughs> so you were doing shitty Saturday at the same time as Super Saturday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I competed during the day. I got back and I remember I was in a pick and mix shop in, in Gothenburg, like drowning my sorrows in a big bag of sweets. And uh, and and uh, my friend Rick Yates, who was also there, who's also a great athlete, yeah. Richard Yates, um, was like, oh, I think Greg's about to win the gold. And I was like, what? Because <laughs> we and Greg Rutherford were great friends by that point, right? And best friends I've been. And I was like, what? <laughs> and, we, and I was trying to keep up with it on Twitter, which is, you know, still, and uh, well, as I said, it was like data roaming, I how much data and all this, stuff, trying to find Wi-Fi. And then it, it, that did, you know, it led, suddenly it was a very positive thing, but it was, um, 
Uh, yeah, because suddenly my you know, my best friend won Olympic gold. It was just unthinkable, and uh, I just couldn't I couldn't believe it. It was a remarkable turn of events. So um so that was it. I had this sort of true epitome of me not making it on my personal level, but thankfully I was able to still sort of celebrate that from a you know a friend a friend's success. So I, I did I did sort of enjoy that as a fan, um, if you will. But uh, yeah, my own career never never recovered from from missing out in 2012. Sure. Okay, okay. I assume you're still quite pally with Greg, then, yeah? Yeah, well, very, very much so. You know, Greg was the Greg was the best man at my wedding, and Godfather's my first child, etc. So yeah, we're we're very close. We work together as well there still, you know. So yeah. Good, good stuff, good mm. stuff. So tell about outside athletics, and you you moved on to start DNA Fit at first, wasn't it? It's about well, you you talk through the science of it, but it's about yeah. the genetics and how that. Well, you talk about it. You'll, you'll yeah, explain okay, as well I can. Yeah. So while I was you know just sort of limping along like still training a bit after 2012 i um i got introduced to a scientist who was looking at the role of genetics in sports people so whether some people you know have certain hereditary factors in their dna which made them more prone to being an athlete or made them more prone to responding to different types of exercise you know responding to exercise in different ways to another person Right. And then he'd done a lot of research in nutrition and he was interested in whether that affected the exercise response as well. And uh, I found it really fascinating. And I actually took the test and it, it spoke quite specifically to what I'd experienced in my life, which was, you know, one of the factors I found was that there's a gene called the ACTN3 gene that is known as kind of the, the Olympic gene or the sprinter gene, because you can have three variants of this gene, uh, two copies of the C, but I won't go into the detail, but there's three variants of the gene you have. Mm. One called CC, CT or TT, basically. So two two copies of the C, two copies of the T or one of each. And anyone with the presence of at least one copy of the C allele of this gene um, is completely overrepresented in elite level power sport. So um, it, it it has a it plays a role where it helps a, a very efficient synthesis of fast twitch muscle fiber. Okay. So you're doing. talking sprinters, you're talking power based yeah. athletes, weightlifters, boxers, power power okay. events, right? Okay. So it's extremely rare that Olympic level power athletes don't have at least one copy of the C. So rare there was even like a case study published on a long jumper once who had made the Olympic Games but didn't have the C copy of the ACTN3 gene. Right? It's very rare. It's it's only one tiny factor. Of course, it's tiny factor, but it seems to be a you know a strong proxy for for other power ability. And this test, I found out that I didn't have it. I was in this like absolute minority of elite level power athletes. But it did explain a lot about when you know my most effective training I found and there would certainly be some confirmation bias I was looking for answers here in why I've, my career had gone downhill but I did my best when I trained like a middle distance athlete as opposed to a sprinter so in the 400 for those that haven't done it people tend to come at it one of two ways they go sort of short to long so they're either like primarily 200 meter runners who add some speed endurance on top that tends to be popular amongst the Americans that have sort of got a stronger sort of speed power base but then you have this kind of old school English or European mentality, which is the long to short, where you do lots of long distance graft, middle distance runners, you're almost an 800 meter runner who just does some sprint training. And then um, I was absolutely better suited to that long to short method, uh, whereas other athletes at the top level weren't. And the higher up you go in the 400 meters, the less common that is. So the, the faster I got, the more common it was that everyone around me did it the, the way that was the antithesis to how I trained. Yeah. So of course, what happens is you get better and you think, well, in order to get even better, I probably need to do it the way everybody else does it. And actually, that was the start of the, the downhill 
route for me. When I moved to sort of this short to long approach, it wasn't that clear that it was, I stopped having my unique calling card, which was my very strong glass of right. And I didn't really get that much faster in my, my, my sort of acceleration in early phases of the race. So it's, um, it's, a, it's something you can only learn through trial and error, but almost like genetically, it was able to somehow like, you know, support that, static, that trial and error in some way, along with various other things, you know, that, around nutrition facts. Regardless, I found that, that experience quite interesting and positive. And I thought, I just said to this guy, I said, by the way, people like me would probably like to buy this if you could offer one, two, three features in this. And I had no experience in work. I've never, I don't know what made me think I had the, the goal to actually give some product suggestions to this scientist about this thing. I have no experience, I have no scientific background, no work background, right? And then, and he was like, oh, good idea. Let me introduce you to another guy who's looking at commercializing this. And effectively that became the founding of, of a company called DNA Fit. It was a consumer um, product that people could buy to understand how or if any genetic factors they have underlying would affect their response to exercise, nutrition, and then other sort of adjacent things, you know, chronotypes or your sleep schedule, whether you're a light or deep sleeper, that sort of stuff. And the public just really liked it. We did really well. I found myself being a tech founder without meaning to learn, you know, had to learn on the go, like what it takes to run a business or do work, you know, and this is one thing that I'm very passionate about these days is that athletes generally have no education or ability to learn on the go what it takes to actually have a job <laughs> you know like it's it's yeah. you know sports people in general it's a big big problem i try and work towards helping that in, in the future but it's um it was a real learning and i found myself within two months sort of presenting to a premier league football club's medical team on why it was valid or uh, and, and sort of really having to learn on the go and, and thankfully that was able to sort of erase my lack of work experience and my lack of education um as we were successful so yeah so, that was Good. So I guess you're saying DNA is it's not the be all and end all, but it's a, it's a key component for understanding performance ultimately at all. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say it's a key component; it's just a component. So yeah. you know, just as you you wouldn't hinge your performance choices or your exercise choices just on a, one other any other biometric, i.e. your weight or your current heart rate or anything. But there is there are genetic factors which affect things the way when. So it's about the interaction between what you do and how you're made, and and you know we all know if we all sort of trained a group of individual athletes or gave dietary advice to a group of individuals people respond differently to the same input and there are many factors which affect that one of those is genomics so by giving people the access to that data we were able to help sort of create a better sort of picture of where they might try first or what they might do so some things like you know the way you metabolize caffeine caffeine is commonly used as probably the only actually effective performance enhancing substance that that you can take it whether allowed or disallowed the evidence is, is really only there's not many other substances other than caffeine that actually have true evidence that they help performance and um, but for some people when you look at these studies the average work for some people it really doesn't seem to help performance at all they have no ergogenic effect from that and there is a genomic relationship with that to around the gene called the cyp102 gene so by knowing this stuff, you can say, well, actually, I'm a slow metabolizer of caffeine. So maybe I don't need to give myself the jittery anxiety of using caffeine pre-race or whatever. So there's 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 just numerous little things like that, which can be quite impactful in a, in a sort of you know health program or a performance program. How granular can you get with this? I mean, can you take someone's DNA and uh, suggest that's the sport you should be doing that or even that that's the athletics event as specific as that you should be doing or is it, is it not as granular no, as that no everyone always wants 
DNA to be that. There's no mm. evidence to say it can. Um, so, you know, for example, I don't have that gene, which is the Olympic sprinter gene. If you'd, right. if you'd, yeah. if you'd made an assumption of that, you wouldn't have said that I'd go on to win an Olympic medal in an Olympic sprint event, right? <laughs> so, in yeah. a power event. Right? So, so it doesn't appear that. I mean, there's so many factors to that. You know, do you live close to a facility where you can do that? How good is the coach at that place? Do you have someone that's willing to drive you to the training three times a week? Like, what what you like doing? You know, I maybe I would have been better suited to being an 800 meter runner, but I didn't like doing it. So that overcame every other genetic factor or other biometric factor that might have been there. So, what you can or can't be. Uh, there's no way to say that from a genetic perspective as far as um, I've seen uh, but what it is to say well maybe you can make a more effective route to reaching the goal that you have uh, with this data than without but it, it, again it, it gets talked about in these sort of superlative like overused terms probably due to pop culture like you know Gatacone or Aldous Huxley and stuff people like uh, overstate the role of genetics almost every minute of the day and um and that's what we tried to almost like our sales strategy was to understate it and then that that ends up giving us credibility you know but i mean to be clear not not in not involved in in that that, that world or that business anymore um we we sold that business after five years and were uh joined a, a bigger health technology company called pronetics where we led the, the european arm of that business and we moved into much wider sort of health technology and diagnostics so blood, blood testing and uh, other health services Notably, when COVID came along, uh, I ended up running the entire operations of the Premier League's COVID testing program, which right. was a remarkable experience. <laughs> and, uh, right. and lots of war stories from that, of uh, denying players access to a match or, uh, you know, having to track down errant players that have gone missing and send samples on private planes to you know, <laughs> places all over the world, and test people under code name before signings were announced. It was an amazing experience. And um, and uh, and that that sort of um, you know was able to get me back into working in elite sport in some way, which I found really exciting. Sorry, you get Premier League players tested before they would sign. I won't give any details, but there was one big signing for a major club. I had to send a nurse to uh, to a, another country to get the sample, and the club gave me a code name, which happened to be the code name of a very high-profile player. It was the actual name of a high-profile player, and I presume they gave me that to see if it leaked that they would know it was me. But it wasn't that player at all. It was a different player, but the code right. name was of it. Yeah, so ah, very interesting. Clever, very yeah. clever what they did there. And, um, <laughs> and and it was amazing. There was a curfew in the country where we had to get it. So the nurse had to like go under cloak and dagger to get to the sample and get it back in the lab on this private plane. It was yeah, amazing stuff, really, at the height of COVID when it was really, you know, really restrictive. Because, of course, football came back. It was really the first thing that happened in the world after the lockdown. Right, you know, when the Premier League yeah. came back, so we had staff on every single stadium. We built the we built the the digital product, which would check their test status before anyone could enter the, the stadium and or the training ground. And, and uh, so we had some high profile, you know, high profile cases where we you know, said, "Well, actually, I'm sorry, this player can't play." <laughs> you know, that is really interesting. Yeah. Uh, good, good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, what do you so tell me about Pronetics? Then it's, it's much more broad than the DNA side of things. It's it's covering all. Yeah, so I mean, I've since left the business as well, but effectively, uh, uh, I guess you'd call it sort of digital first health health companies. So we had a wider sense of almost like clinical genomics. So we, you know, we'd make products that uh, clinical entities would use for precision medicine or precision health. You could do a test, uh, so the test called a PGX test, which is where you look at how your genetics might interact with pharmaceutical drugs. 
So in some cases, people need a different dosage of a drug or um, may have an adverse drug reaction if they take a certain medicine that's common for that condition, if they've got a certain DNA variant. So um, so that sort of thing. And then you, into things like cancer risk and other um, health predispositions as well. Uh, and then, you, yeah, also on the other side of just your know, general sort of health screening or diagnostic tests, so, you know, uh, monitoring someone's thyroid function through a home blood right. test, and that sort of stuff. So we, you know, it was a wider, what you'd call sort of digital health um, ecosystem. And eventually that business, um, we, you know, we could run infectious disease testing. So COVID came along and that was a, a huge um, task for us to, to help manage COVID testing there for a number of big entities, as I said, the Premier League included. And uh and, uh, and then thankfully that helped us culminate in um, we actually listed the business on the Nasdaq uh, in May 2022 and I left the business subsequently. So we had a real success story from DNA Fit becoming part of Prenetics. That was a success and then Prenetics yeah. growing to, to an IPO uh, in May. So I would call myself an exited sort of tech founder these days. And, um, and that's uh, in, in my world, that's sort of like a, you know, equivalent to Olympic medal. <laughs> so, yeah. Good. Good man. Yeah. Good man. What's um what? I'm talking a bit of a comfort zone here, but what is or will be AI's role in all of this in 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 health tech or in sport? Yeah, in health tech, in health tech, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the health tech is or health generally. Because what you're, what you're talking about is quite tailor-made stuff, isn't it? It's tailor-made stuff you're talking yeah, about. It yeah, it is. So I mean, oh, I mean, AI. It's a bit like saying what role will the internet play? Like, it will play a role across the, the entire value yeah, chain. Okay. Right? Some use cases that are worth sort of think for people to consider is like. Health data is is um, famously sort of siloed, messy, and inoperable, and that means that one hospital would store your health data in a certain platform in a certain format, and then they would send your blood test to another lab, and then there's no consistency between that lab and the next lab. There's no consistency between like advice from you know one practitioner to another. Or can they see your health record or not? There's very messy, um, untranslatable data across the spectrum of health. And that, you know, in theory, in an ideal utopia, you would turn up and someone would be able to quickly see everything you've ever taken, been treated for, notes you've been given in a secure manner. So uh, making sense of how all of that stuff interacts with each other is impossible on a human level. Like it's too much for a human. AI may be the route where we can finally sort of say, you know, because you took that supplement when you were 17 for two years because you had a certain condition and then you had um yeah. then you did this in your lifestyle that, that interaction between everything could only be made sense of by a, a i think a, a non-human mind if you will so that, that's where i see uh, there's very obvious use cases like even like transcription of medical consultations right you know that, that's that's sort of a game changer where you remove the admin burden from doctors when they're speaking to a patient from actually writing down the notes you know if this can be accurate and pull out the key takeaways without them having to do that the doctor can do more consults or spend more time with the patient be a bit more present and um so there's there's many millions of use cases for it but i think if we probably fast forward in 10 years time you'll probably find something where you go oh actually without ai we were so hampered in actually making sense of people's health um, yeah. and that, that's uh that's where i see it but it's a uh, a much bigger question than could possibly answer on an athletics podcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, well, let's get back to athletics then. Let's get yeah. back to, to both our comfort zone. What, what's your relationship now like with the sport? Are you still involved in any way? Yeah, not enough, I would say. Like, um, and uh, I've got a new, um, a potential new venture, which hopefully, you know, will keep me closer to sport. So in, in a, 
while doing all of DNA fit for a certain point, I was um, for a few years, I was also Greg Rutherford's manager. So that was great. Kept me involved in, in sport during, you know, thankfully during Greg's uh, best years, if you will. So, yeah, so um, yeah. that, was, that was great. And I, I love that. I love being around it. I work in, um, I work in a, a couple of centers as a kind of advisor in digital sport and sports technology. Um, and uh, I would like to be close, even closer in on that. One of the things when I exited Pronetics after we listed, I said to myself, is I want to be closer to the sport. My biggest fear is uh, watching the Olympic Games in, you know, four or eight years' time and not having any connection to it. I don't just want to be a fan, you know. And um, somehow, having spent your life in this, you you still uh, – I could have plenty of financial or commercial success elsewhere, do something else, but it doesn't tick a box as much in my soul as being sort of close yeah. to the sport, right? So for, for right or wrong, it's like you've been brainwashed. <laughs> it's like some sort of cult. <laughs> I would assume – I would eschew other success in order to have like mild success, but still being aligned to the sport. Uh, and it's funny, just this morning I was chatting to um, yeah, Abdul Bahari. Um, yeah, just because uh, yeah. yeah. we've we, both done very well in our professional lives. We're both just saying the same thing. Is like for some reason it keeps pulling you back in, and you want to be involved. So, uh, so that's my that's my aim is that to hopefully still be closer. I've been working on a, a new business around um, live biometric data in sport and. Um, and uh, and uh, I'm really quite keen to uh, to progress that, and I've got some good good potential opportunities with that to get me closer to almost like the events uh, side of the sport. Okay. And how how do you view athletics now? Let's let's take it as a spectator. I mean, do you still when you're involved in the you're on the track there? How are you in the stands now? Do you, how do you see it as a spectacle, having been involved in other sports now? It's got a lot of work to. It's got a lot of challenges to overcome the sport. Right? And um, the interesting thing is, once you've taken a step back from it for for a few years, I have to say other than the very major championships, I probably didn't follow the sport for a couple of years after I retired. And then you realise how little effect or visibility society has of the sport, even when it's the World Championships. Uh, you know, like outside of the Olympic Games, it barely makes a ripple on the sort of general populace's um, radar, right? It, it, it's, it's, and when you're in it, you think it's such a huge thing, you know? my God, if I can make the World Championships, I'll make the European Championships. And then you realise how insignificant in the grand scheme of things the sport has. And it shouldn't be that way. You know, it's the purest expression of sport. And it's it makes for even the nature of the multidiscipline sport. It actually it actually plays quite well into the sort of the modern Gen Z way of absorbing sport, which is short clips. But then with a second screen, watch in and around um, big major live events. So where there's an experience, but then outside of that, there's lots of easily digestible short content. Like something like athletics makes for better short form content than a whole football match, right? You know, know, on paper. Um, So the sport really has to look at itself quickly. And I think it needs to make some big moves. I've been in and around almost like the political environment of of athletics um, in and out over the last few years from a federation side of things. And you see how actually I am of the opinion that, some of the governance structures there are holding the sport back for sure. And I don't yeah. want to be too sort of specific, but I think, you know, I've talked about innovation to a, a committee of um, delegates, should we say, and uh, been met with so many blank faces and shaking heads, uh, even the fact of like doing something better in the native app for that event, right? You know, like the, even the smallest innovation is like getting um, shut down. And I just think the sport is almost like uh, cutting off its nose despite its face in that case by being too traditionalist. I don't know what the solution is. I don't think it's an easy solution, but um, there's much cleverer people than me that definitely could provide a good solution. But it needs the buy in from the 
sport political environment around to actually get that through its governance controls and i, I think that's going to be the thing which uh, holds it back from progressing yeah yeah it's uh it's it often, i mean I'm, I'm a similar sort of uh generation i, 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 I when you're involved with sports you love it uh, but when you do take a step out of it you realize that yeah people are watching this but I've, I've worked at many events olympic games commonwealth games and then when you do take a pause you don't consume it yourself and you think wow i was so invested in that and yeah <laughs> Yeah, you can see it through the people's why, why, eyes suddenly. <laughs> why did I think this was such a big deal? You know, <laughs> and you know what the funny thing is, we get these things which paper over the cracks, right? And I think the example may have been like, when was the World Champs in Berlin? It was an amazing World Champs, right? Uh, I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, there was incredible viewership and you know incredible atmosphere in the stadium, and it, and it had like these incredible stats to support it. Wow, what a success the sport is! But then outside of that, there was like absolutely nothing and the sign of a healthy sport economy is when you know outside of the big events there is like somehow it, it seeps into the popular culture and it seeps into people's minds all the time no matter what like uh, is that middle of the range premier league player has recently you know done this or done this campaign like that's a sign that there's a healthy ecosystem around that and i, I love athletics to not focus as much on like is our major flagship event got high enough viewing figures and look at other metrics, you know, like, and, and that's the way it's going to have a long-term future uh, is like, how it does, does it, does the domestic competition make any sense? Are people even turning up to even compete in the domestic competition? If you don't have that, you aren't going to have an elite product in the end. And, um, and that's uh, but it's good. It takes a long-term view to get right. And with the governance procedures of being elected, or being in the job for a certain period of time, a short period of time, it's very hard to take a medium or long-term view in that case. Good, good. So how fit are you still? Do you still, still keep fit yourself? You've talked a lot about uh, performance and fitness. <laughs> no, not very fit. Eh? I, I, I mean, well, as you said, I've just had a second chance. I've not done any exercise for at least six weeks now. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I, I, try to, I try to run like twice a week, and I've, I've had to find my, I've had to train myself to be able to run slower for longer. And um for a year after I retired formally, I didn't do any exercise at all or think about what I ate in any way at all. I almost needed to purge myself with the care of that. And then I've, it, does, it is hard to find a sort of healthy relationship with exercise because every exercise served a purpose before and your quality of your exercise defined your identity and your self-worth before. And then suddenly I go and do a park run and I finish 250th. <laughs> and I think, hold on a second, like, the local shopkeeper is faster than me at 5k here. Yeah, it's a long way from Beijing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you see, you've got to stop judging yourself. So the, re- the way I've managed to, I think I've managed to conquer that is by the running I do now. I found myself signing up for a couple of these sort of like trail races in the Alps. And I did one in Germany, the Zugspitze, right. uh, last year, which I do the shortest possible route. So a 14k route. I can't run very far, but I loved that. I loved the experience of it. It's not about the time. I don't expect to be good at it. And it gave me something to work towards. So that that's currently sort of all I do is I'll, I'll go to the gym sometimes. I'll go for a long run with the idea that maybe next summer I'll do a really nice race in sunny Alps and, uh, and have a great adventure from it. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's probably what I would think. I would, I would love to think I was good enough at, I just can't, I've tried whenever I try and consistently train I'm just I am just not good enough anymore it supports my theory that I was I was psychologically talented but not physically talented when I was young so yeah okay okay good good oh yeah. well, it's good to, good to see you've made a success beyond the sports anyway uh, how, how important do you think the being an athlete has helped you in your work career I think it's made 
It's character building. It's character building, isn't it? Athletics. It's ca- yeah. There's so many lessons. It's a cliche, but there are so many like for likes between being a successful founder or entrepreneur or leader and the qualities needed to be a good sports person. And in fact, one of the things I'm doing now is I'm just starting a new um, sort of project and entity, which is to help sports people navigate how to become entrepreneurs, you know, how to how to found a business. What will they need to know? What will they need to think about? What kind of people they need to bring in? Because sports people, in my experience, are really well suited to being entrepreneurs, more so than they are suited to going into normal corporate jobs. And normally when you're a sports person, you retire, you find a graduate program or a junior job that people are able to give you because you were a sports person and you find yourself in a sort of corporate environment learning the ropes there. But that's not where we thrive. Like with especially individual sports, you thrive in being an entrepreneur, actually being that type of sort of enigma. And, uh, and there's so many more like for like, like psychological traits across, between entrepreneurs, successful founders and successful sports people that I do want every sports person to consider how might they be a business owner? How might they forge their own path this way and try to give them more help with that? So I was lucky enough that I had this opportunity that showed me the ropes in real time as I, as I left my sporting career. But if I hadn't had that, I would have really struggled to adjust into sort of an office environment where I had political you know, hierarchy where I wasn't the alpha male and these sort of things. And I think um, I really want to call on all sports people to consider being entrepreneurs and taking risk again when they leave their sports career, because uh, they are, in my experience, quite well suited to that. So, um, yeah, it's a it's it, it gives you it gives you sort of a singular identity and focus as well, which sport did before. Whereas being, you know, regional sales manager at a box company or something is probably not <laughs> probably not going to do for you right so so uh so i want to keep athletes happy and, and satisfied by by following an exciting entrepreneurial path when they finish their career good good stuff brilliant thanks yeah. andrew it's great catching up with you today thanks for sparing your time uh, and being yeah, so open um, and uh, talking on a breadth of subjects thank you yeah i know we covered a lot <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Athletic Life Stories with Chris Broadbent. Please tell your friends and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Sports Social Podcast Network.